Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 55, the one about Steve Jobs' two-word strategy, Facebook outages, and the film Jaws. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. And as always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. My co-host, as always, is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Please welcome Mr. Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much. Well, it is a pleasure to spend some time with someone who's also on a mission to keep marketing simple. This time, you're the voice of the Marketing and Finance podcast and the host of the Roger video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And Pascal, something very important I've got to say to you today. Happy birthday. Well, thank you. This is actually quite special, you know, for the podcast recording day to land on one of our birthdays. And with that in mind, I did send you a special request for film marketing, haven't I? Yes, you did. And we are going to be talking later on in the show about one of the greatest films of all time, the first ever summer blockbuster. We are going to be talking about... Dun, 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 <laughs> Jaws. So please hang around till later in the podcast to hear us talk about not only that great film, but how it was marketed. But before we get to that, Pascal, shall we go straight into the news? Advertisers rushed back to cinema as the, as the latest Bond film, No Time to Die, grossed £26 million in the UK box office in just four days, surpassing the previous two films in the franchise Spectre and Skyfall. Greg's is to increase marketing spend in a loyalty push. The bakery chain is also looking to drive growth through a focus on evening dining and plans to have two-thirds of its stores open for late trading by 2022. Well, according to data gathered by job site Read for Marketing Week, there was a 302% rise in job openings for marketers in the six months to August 2021 compared to the same period last year. More than two-thirds, i.e. 70%, of consumers say their use of social media as a whole has increased since the start of the pandemic, with 58% suggesting they now communicate with brands more frequently via social platforms. But sadly, three-quarters of Instagram influencers, that's 37.6%, working with brands are hiding disclosure hashtag, such as hashtag ad, hashtag sponsor, or hashtag gifted, within a post rather than making it prominent. The post office has made light of Facebook's outage by launching a reactive poster campaign to remind the public that there is one method of keeping in touch with friends and family that you can still rely on. Mm, in a recent survey conducted by the New Statesman Media Group, around 14% of marketers said that big campaigns on little resources and unclear business objectives are top of the list of grievances. And finally, Lexus debuted a marketing campaign that puts a hero from the upcoming Marvel movie Eternals behind the wheel of an IS500 performance sedan. The Toyota luxury-owned line is the exclusive automotive partner in the film where two of its vehicles make an appearance. Wow. Yeah, so Pascal, we, we really do have to talk about No Time to Die. Now, I know that you've not been to see this film yet, I have been to see this film, and I'm going to be very, very careful not to spoil it for you. So I'm not going to give you any specifics about No Time to Die, other than to say that it is absolutely superb, a fabulous end to the Daniel Craig era of James Bond. And actually, I'm not surprised that in the first four days of trading, they effectively cleared more money than the previous two Bond films put together. It's just fascinating. And yes, so I've been spending the last week or so dodging <laughs> news, reviews and spoilers, both in French and in English, because um, although we're having a wonderful time in France, Roger, the first thing I'll do when we're back in the UK is to see it, of course, in the original language. Yeah, I mean, it, it is just it is just great. And it, it, it's, it, I suppose we got quite annoyed when it was delayed um, and delayed twice. Um, and, I, and I was all for... Oh, just put it out on on uh, on on demand. Let us watch it at home. But you know, seeing it on the big screen and it is such a spectacle. I I think they did make the right decision, and it certainly seems to have um, created this massive rush back to the cinema. Hence the massive uh, box office takings. 
Yeah, and you know, so audiences are back. The advertisers follow, um, which I think is going to be very helpful for the whole industry of you know the management of the theatres and venues. Yeah, and talking about other big, big things that have happened over the last week, of course, <laughs> the the huge Facebook outage. Um, I think Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp, WhatsApp Messenger, and and um, uh, Facebook Messenger as well effectively went down for pretty much a good 12 hours and of course the thing that amused me the most is you get all these marketers immediately writing articles and posts saying ah oh, we we just told you that you shouldn't build your um, empire on somebody else's property you should always have a website you should always have an email list yes we understand that it's absolutely a point well made but my goodness do so many people have to make the same point but what was quite interesting is this post office reaction you know i would not have expected the post office to be a brand that would have le- would have leapt so quickly onto another brand's mis- misfortune like this this is uh, a great example of uh, that term newsjacking mm. which sometimes suggests something negative or or un- underhand technique but ultimately there's something that currently is grabbing the news headlines occupying the space both physical and digital in terms of news and a brand like the post office, who are really, you know, the um, when we talk about sometimes the uh, this week in history, and we remind ourselves about people sending telegrams and the first form of telephone calls and so on, they are really an institution when it comes to communicating and still sending parcels and letters. And I thought, yes, good on you, you know. And, and I think more importantly, we all know as we're approaching the end of year celebration festivities the pleasure in sending and receiving postcards and letters. I think the timing is impeccable. Yeah, and, and there is a there is a bit of a return to sending proper things through the post, isn't there? You know, thank you cards and and things like that are making a comeback. And I think we've we've lived in the digital world for so long. Um it, it is really nice to see sometimes that paper dropping through the letterbox in the morning or midday as it usually turns out to be but uh, i think i think it's nice to have that that retro feel to things again absolutely yeah now yesterday i went down to durham pascal i was at a live event doing a speech and thank you for putting me in touch with the organizers of that event and i found myself emailing uh, i found myself sorry using social media to get in touch with lner because i wasn't particularly impressed with their service yesterday later in the day uh, i had course to use the twitter account of a company called v via gogo who which is a, a concert ticket selling um, business and it just made me think about this news item where so many more people are going straight to social media to engage with brands, mainly if they've got a complaint, I have to say. But sometimes I do try to compliment brands as well. So are you surprised by this this figure of 58% of people effectively using social media to communicate with brands as the first means of communication? Not any longer. Perhaps a few years ago, I'd have been quite surprised. But here's the point, Roger. Both in terms of complaints and compliments, it's easier than trying to seek out the number to ring on their very cumbersome and clumsy website. It's easier than to send an email. It's easier than writing a letter. And more importantly, people will know from their own experience, but also what they've heard others say to them, you usually get a quicker response if you go on social media. In fact, by extension, if you do a a live chat as well, you get a better service than trying any other other things. What I think is important is for the brands then to say, well, how do we turn this into a positive experience? Because ultimately, you don't want your Twitter account or Facebook account to become the surrogate kind of complaints department. And, And I think this is where they can get more innovative, more imaginative. Yeah. And make the, the Facebook page a go-to destination for a range of experiences, not just the, um, I'm having a hard day, please help me out. Yeah, that, that is such a good point. That's such a good point. And, and again, you know, having said what we said about the post just before, mm. it, it just highlights how reliant we are upon social media as a communications vehicle now. And you're absolutely right as well to make the point that so many brands effectively hide their contact details 
down in the depths of their websites where sometimes <laughs> it, you almost give up trying to look for the contact details. So once again, some fascinating news items to look at there. Could have probably talked about all of them, but as always, we want to fire through the show and, and head towards that review of Jaws that we're going to um, talk about mm. later in the show. But the next section of the show is also one of my favourites, Pascal. So let's move on now to the content spotlights. In this section of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table a piece of content. Now, that could be a blog article, it could be a podcast, it could be a video. Something that's caught our attention in the last week. So, Pascal, what have you got for me today? Well, today I've got a short-form article about the Facebook outage. What else? Ah, now, yeah. now, back to your point earlier. Like many people, I discovered something was wrong when I was trying to contact actually my parents on video messenger. I must confess, much to my shame, I actually blame my parents first thinking, well, they must have done something wrong because that's what they do typically. But when I eventually managed to get some news, realized there was something the matter, it was just, I was just interested to understand why, what happened, why it happened, and what could we do in, 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 the, in the future. But I was also very disappointed by the tone of the many articles, the tone of the many podcasts and videos, which was very, very harsh, very full of blame and, and that kind of things, until I came across this article from Jeff Beer for fastcompany.com, a fine news um, outlet. And the the title is, Facebook not working would be a case study for social media managers in how to maximize brand Twitter. And what Jeff is saying, and I won't reveal too much because it's a short article, but also it's so witty and makes you smile. And this idea of, yes, um, no doubt the outage would have had some negative impact on many businesses and individuals. But we need to relearn to sometimes have a more moderate views on what is happening upon us. Because ultimately, as Jeff puts it, you know, the instability of technology is inevitable from time to time. And we just need to maybe sit, step back a bit and just take a look at what is happening. But more importantly, what the article does and makes you smile, it begins with this idea of when it happened, within moment, the brand managers at Twitter went and put a tweet out saying, hello, literally everyone. <laughs> and recognizing that the world would just move from the Facebook ecosystem to probably Twitter, ahead of LinkedIn, I would argue. And then from that moment on, from that those three words, hello, literally everyone, all the big brands, all the big consumer brands that you can think of went on and they had a well over time and actually started to become a source of entertainment and, and relief from what was potentially very negative news. It was such a wonderful antidote to the other form of articles. I even saw journalists seeking out businesses and asking them, so please tell me, how much business have you lost? And people coming up with figures where I thought, well, that seems a bit fanciful. Not disrespect to all those amazing small businesses, Roger, but I don't think you can make that much money from, from Facebook. You, know, you need to be very, very careful. But by extension, yeah. one, you could say since this is inevitable that it will happen again, and next time it'll be Twitter, next time it'll be Google, do we need as business owners to have plans, plan B's and C's? You know, do we need to have uh, contingency plans as you would if it was a uh, power cut or if there was not something else happening? So I think it's also a lesson on forward planning for, for managers. But more importantly, at a time where, as Jeff puts it, light-hearted content and moments are so rare and few and far between, should we relearn to just, once again, take stock, understand the impact, but not necessarily go for the very harsh and negative views? It, this is this is very interesting, and, and I think a bit of light-hearted banter is is an antidote to quite a lot of serious stuff that's going on at the moment. I mean, Twitter. A lot of people don't go near Twitter these days, Pascal, as you know, because I've I've heard Twitter described as a cesspit. You know, especially when you get polarized views where people are slagging each other off, talking about politics or diversity or whatever it might be, and and it. Social media does sometimes become this sort of um, echo chamber of really extreme views. And, and I really try hard to keep away from all of that. So it is nice to focus in on something lighthearted. And OK, uh, it was a very serious thing that happened to Facebook. And whatever the reason behind it was, you know, I'm sure they've got a lot of people running around trying to make sure it doesn't happen again. But 
yes, people were going to jump onto that and 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 capitalize on it. But it is nice that somebody did something like this, which was really quite funny. No, absolutely, and just really reporting by this idea of it is one of the qualities we have as people. We can take a subject matter very seriously, but the way in which we communicate and almost express our views just be calm and keep going almost. You know, that, that's kind of a very, very famous statement. So anyway, that was my bit about saying when you seek it out, you will always find a more positive view about, you know, uh, in a sea of kind of negative reporting and so on. But what about you, Roger? What have you got for us for this week in Content Spotlights? Well, this is a, a really interesting article by Jason Atten from Inc. Uh, online, and it's about Steve Jobs. And the heading of the article is Steve Jobs stole his best idea ever from Nike's brilliant two-word marketing strategy. And that just grabbed my attention because it had the word strategy in it, obviously. And you know that I think that we should always think about the bigger picture before we dive into the tactics. Uh, But obviously, anything to do with Steve Jobs always tends to be something that's quite interesting and and just like um you know people jump onto the bandwagon of um of the facebook just like you've described there i think people often jump onto the steve jobs bandwagon as well to put points across but this is a piece of jobs law i guess that i had not come across before and what jason does in his article pascal and it's it's a very short article you literally read it in about um two or three minutes he quotes a speech that steve jobs gave right back in 1977 so this was when he'd just come back to apple after that period of time when he had uh, departed the company and and apple wasn't particularly in a good place at the time you know they were they were suffering and i'm going to read you the quote from Steve Jobs' speech where he talks about Nike. So he says, Nike sells a commodity, they sell shoes. And yet, when you think of Nike, you feel something different than a shoe company. In their ads, as you know, they don't ever talk about the product. They don't ever talk about their shoes. How they're better than Reebok's shoes, for example. What Nike do in their advertising is they honour great athletes and they honour great great athletics that is what they are about and effectively you can summarize that in two words which is no products they don't ever talk about the products no products and after that pretty much for a decade apple's advertising always featured something other than products they had this whole thing going on about thinking differently and you know aspirationals and changing the world which of course eventually they did with the ipod the imac and eventually the iphone and we we all know how that's absolutely revolutionized the world and whilst i think that apple have probably strayed back now into product advertising i think what was so interesting to me about this little article and how it made me um, think about it is we are all told let's promote our products that's one of the key things about marketing and yes we know that on the whole you shouldn't promote the features of your products you should promote the benefits of your product you know sell the sizzle the sizzle rather than the sausage I guess is one of the cliches but maybe sometimes it's worth sitting back and thinking if we had to advertise our brand or our company without without talking about the products, what would that promotion, what would that advertising, what would that content look like? And for me, that was a really interesting mental um, thought exercise, um, s- certainly something to think about on the train back from Durham yesterday. Uh, so my challenge to people listening and watching to Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast today as a result of this content spotlight is think of a promotion for your company or your brand, but don't talk about your products and see where it gets you. Do you know what's interesting? It, it feels as though, and that's why it's so important that we have this podcast, that whilst people will suggest and claim that content marketing has been with us for 10 years and that we're really getting better at it than ever before, here we are, a bit of a you know, humble pie. In 1977, somebody came along and said, 
let's adopt a theme, which would be the term I would use. Let's go for what we stand for and use that. And and I think for me, you're right. You know, We've all been trained to go for features and benefits. That's what I would call the essential stories. And by all means, do them. You must obviously uh, do that. But then what else are you left with to stand out from the crowd? And particularly nowadays, the white noise of the internet. Then you're left with the emotional stories. In the case of you know Nike celebrating the actually the commitment and the hard work of those athletes, and then telling that their stories. For me, one of the the best adverts I've ever seen on TV to this day is the 2012 Paralympics adverts mm. on Channel mm. 4, do you remember? Yeah. It, w- it used to bring tears to my eyes because of the storytelling, the composition, the music, and so on. But but that was it. You know, th- th- it, was, it wasn't saying, oh, we have some games happening very soon, and these are the dates, and these are the times, and please um, join in uh, and support. It was just telling you that story visually and, and also with sound. That was truly incredible. And I think for people listening to this podcast and watching this video, you are part of um, the solution. And you can get inspiration, as Roger did a moment ago, by reading articles, by watching videos and, and films that are away from your industry, which I think that's what happened with Steve Jobs here. You know, you could argue, hey, you're the commuter guy. What on earth are you doing looking and paying attention to what a, a shoemaking company is doing? It's actually because that's where the inspiration comes from for me. Yeah, often we can take our best inspiration from the way others articulate things and what others are doing, which is why I I just really like the succinct brilliance of that particular article. Thank you, Pascal. Another great debate on content. Shall we move on now and talk about marketing, tech and apps? Pascal, tell me, what technology have you got to share with me this week? So today, my two choices and suggestions are born out of recent disappointment. <laughs> so Roger, as people have um, have heard last week and this week, I'm currently in France visiting family, but also taking advantage of my French office in Saint-Nazaire near Nantes in Brittany. And I've been sharing pictures, particularly of where I've been, what I've done and so on. But I'm sure you feel the same. You know, you, you take the, the shot of, of the beach in Saint-Brévin, you take the, the shot of a lovely building. And then when you look at it, compared to what your eye can see, it just doesn't match, does it? It's very, very disappointing. And and I've been thinking about this. I'm also, I must confess, also just keen to not uh, tease too many of my British friends with this glorious weather I'm enjoying at this moment in time. But nonetheless, so I remembered recently an app called CapCut, C-A-P-C-U-T, CapCut Video and Photo Editor. And although I've been using it to edit photos, it is also a very good video editor for your mobile phone, both Android and, and iPhones. What I've used it for was to take a photo and do a 3D rendering. So what AI, the AI kind of powered system can do on CapCut is take a shot. In this case, for me, it was um, the beach, you know, looking to the distance. And what it does, it creates a foreground, a middle ground, and a background, and then animated to music and sound effects, just kind of give it more, um, bringing more life to your shots. So it's good fun to do. It's actually very, very good for products as well as services and anything that you want to do. So if you want to bring a bit, bit of life, as I mentioned a moment ago, to maybe your social media post or your blogging activities, CapCut, both for photo and videos, is very, very good. Then the other thing was um, I wanted to, on occasion, send a, a quote, a sentence, or even simply a, a date uh, in terms of a venue. And I wanted to work very fast. I didn't want to open too many apps or, or go into Canva and stuff like that. So once again, I was reminded of something called InstaQuote. An InstaQuote editor allows you to use their own backgrounds or images. You can, of course, use your own images and add a, a sentence, a strap line, in your case, it could be about simplicity and more, but also choose from a multitude of calligraphy and, and typeface, which means that you can really print something that feels very much unique to you and to your brand. Once again, to illustrate your website, maybe a blog articles with some kind of headers and, and kind of captions, as well as your social media activities. So CapCut and InstaQuote remembered them because of sheer disappointment about how uh, you know unequal 
the real stuff is compared to the photos that you can be taking. <laughs> I'm definitely going to um, check those out, Pascal. They same right up my street. In fact, I was just thinking um, yesterday that I wanted to send a quote in just that format. So again, interesting that you should have uh, come up with that today. Now, I've been thinking a lot recently about Word for Windows, because I have been using Word for Windows pretty much exclusively for as long as I can remember. When I was in big corporate, we use Word for Windows. When I'm here at my desk, I use Word for Windows for blogging, for typing. I used it for my book. But, you know, Pascal, as good as Word for Windows is, sometimes I think it's just far too complicated. And and sometimes even the online version, which we use here to share our show notes and, and discussion points, for the podcast sometimes the formatting just baffles me you know the 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 font will change to something or i can't i can't sort of hit return and get a sentence to match up with the the previous line it'll want to split words in half or it won't line the words up and no matter how hard you try you just can't seem to be able to break the formatting that's gone into it for some reason and maybe it's because you've pasted it in from somewhere else. It's, it's prob- probably something like that. But sometimes it just really, really frustrates me. So I started looking recently for different types of word processor. Now, of course, you really want a word processor package these days that, like Word, will synchronize across mo- mobile devices. And I came across two, um, one called Wordsmith and another one called Writing Space. Now, Wordsmith attracted my attention because it has all sorts of different templates and some of them are really, really intuitive. Um, It almost reminded me of Canva to a certain extent. And both of them have this facility where you can effectively turn all the buttons off and just end up with a completely blank page, blank screen, and you can type without being distracted by the file, the, you know, the file menu, the home menu, the insert menu, the layout menu, the references menu, and all the buttons and all the things. And I give it a try. And, and the reason I'm pointing these things out this week is that I think we should try to look for alternatives to the tried and trusted. But when I had eliminated all these buttons and I just had this screen, inevitably I wanted to make something bold. And I'm thinking, well, how the hell do I make it bold? So I get, I guess. I'm highlighting these two things because I think they 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 look fresh, and again, words look pretty much the same for decades. These things look fresh, so I, I enjoy playing around with them. But I guess the question I'm asking people listening to the show and watching the show, and, I, and now I'm going to ask you, Pascal, is do you really want an app where you can turn everything off like that and just type? I mean, if you are going to do, maybe just use the note, the, the basic notepad thing in, in Windows, I guess, is the other alternative. Or have we become so addicted to all the buttons and all the formatting tools that really, you know, something like Word for Windows is, is just inevitable? I can certainly relate to having to undo formatting all of the time, mm. either because I receive a document from somebody else or in the case of the show notes. I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes the online version of Microsoft Word will play games on you and I, and you kind of go, yeah. what's going on? Um, I like the idea of toggling things on and off. So I'd like to be able to quickly bring them back on if I wanted to do some uh, some mm. editing. But I like the idea of going back to the pen and paper experience. So, mm. you know, if we use the analogy of filmmaking, when someone has to write a treatment, they usually p- grab a pad, a, a pen, in the case of George Lucas, a pencil and a, and a yellow <laughs> pad, and they just scribble away uh, freeform. Yeah. And maybe we need to have that second uh, option of freeform writing before maybe you can open up all the, the menu options. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably fair. You what you want that halfway house between the two, don't you? Mm. You want that halfway house. But yeah, it it was interesting to to I probably will not move on to uh to using one of these apps, but I really enjoyed actually just researching it and and having a mess around with them. And as always, the there are free versions and there are paid versions. I think I probably wouldn't pay for one of these two, but I certainly enjoyed playing with the free versions. But as you always say, Pascal, all of these apps that we rely on, all of this technology that we rely on usually has 
a starting point sometime way back in history. So what we need to do now is set the controls of the TARDIS, fire up the flux capacitor and head back in time for this week in history. And in 1923, Walt Disney and his brother Roy found the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio, now known as the Walt Disney Company, one of the largest media companies in the world. In 1954, Texas Instruments launches the first transistor radio, one of the most popular electronic devices in history, with billions manufactured during the 60s and 70s. In 1960, the American adventure film Spartacus, directed by Stanley Kubrick and starring Kirk Douglas, had its world premiere. It won several Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actor for Peter Ustinov. And in 1983, Lotus Development goes public. Lotus Development Corporation went public after record revenues of $12.8 billion for the previous 12 months. And I I remember very early in my corporate career using Lotus Notes. Uh, And was there even something called Lotus 123 at one point? Yeah, that's the one I used, yeah. Yeah, but Pascal, I didn't think... Apparently when I was... When I came across this news item, the early versions of Lotus spreadsheets were in the early 80s, and I would have said that that was much earlier than I'd expected. That was so. I mean, we were introduced as part, so they introduced um, computing, I think it was even called that, lessons when we went to college and university. And Lotus 1, 2, 3, was it? We also use WordPerfect. Yes, <laughs> WordPerfect. My goodness. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. uh, th- th- it started all this, and um, I mean, I can't remember how we migrated eventually to Microsoft Excel, but Lotus One Two Three was something that we used for a long time. But indeed, that's what I, um, that's where I learned all the formulas and all the way in which you can use tables and and calculation for forecast and bar charts and pie charts and all that stuff. Yeah, and of course, they started the spreadsheet, and now, of course, the default. Just like we were talking before, the default word processor is Word for Windows. Of course, the default spreadsheet now is Excel for Windows. But uh, yeah, the humble beginnings traced back in time was Lotus. So which of these these historical items caught your attention this week, Pascal? For me, it has to be the uh, transistor radio. Mm. Uh, first, 1954, which uh, you know is a long time ago. Now, you mentioned a moment ago, and thank you again for the birthday wishes, but... As a child, when I got my first radio uh, on one of my birthdays, I think maybe I was 10 or 11, oh my God, Roger, I think it was as exciting when I got my first computer. It was the a world of freedom. I could just listen to, to my own stuff. But back then, it was one of those um, single earpiece that mm. kept falling off because the cable wasn't long enough. Uh, and of course, almost like kids nowadays would take the mobile phones to bed, I used to take the transistor radio to bed. Now, the sound was awful. It was all full of crackling and hissing and so on. And, and the moment you, you move the dial a bit too much, you would lose the station. But it was just so exciting. So anyway, it was all this kind of um, smuggling going on, me taking the transistor radio to the bedroom, my parents trying to catch me out, uh, and so on, and then listening to French music primarily. So what is interesting for people listening from around the world is that in France, there is a requirement for radio stations and by extension TVs and even streaming services to play a certain percentage of local artists. So I'd be listening to French music, to Italian, German, British, which were always the best to me. And in back then, already some of the superstars of the 70s and 80s rock bands were, were through. They were just um, so exciting. And then came the need to, of course, record and create your own mixtapes. So that's, an, again, another adventure. Yeah, I mean, I can remember feeling so proud when I first got my first clock radio in my bedroom and you were able, it would deliberately set the alarm half an hour early so that it would go off and I could lie in bed and listen to the music coming through from Radio 1 in those days, probably Tony Blackburn or Dave Lee Travis, my goodness, my goodness. So once again, History shows us how much we rely upon those amazing pioneers from the past who have shaped the world that we live in today. Shall we celebrate the work of different types of creators now, Pascal? Shall we move on to the creator shout-outs? 
It won't be long now until we're talking about that fabulous film from 1975, Jaws. So stick around. But before we get to Jaws, let's do some creator shout outs. So, Pascal, who are you celebrating this week? So for me this week, Roger, is a very long overdue. I want to talk to you about David Dern, who is a CEO of Sunderland Software City, the chair of the UK Tech Cluster, and clearly a champion for tech companies in the northeast of England. And I'm glad to say that he just announced they'd be launching a LinkedIn series to shout out, showcase and highlight digital tech companies working in the northeast of England and doing amazing work. And the reason why I'm so delighted is because I like to think that I keep myself informed what is happening in my region and beyond. But it's difficult, isn't it, Roger? And to have someone like David Dunn to put the effort in to highlight those companies for me to understand what they do, who they want to help, so I can refer um, them to, to my customers is just going to be a, a big plus to my work myself as a um, kind of creator of the weekly roundup. So David Dunn, long overdue to give you a big shout out and thank you for all your work you do for the tech industry. We're looking forward to your LinkedIn post as well. And it's always great to celebrate people from the Northeast, isn't it? I love that uh, part of the world, having just come back from Durham yesterday from that great event that I was speaking at. So Pascal, this week, I'm going to give a shout out to three people, actually. And the reason there are three people is that they've just recently all worked collectively on a really interesting campaign in the financial services industry. Now, if I was to say to you, let's talk about income protection, your eyes would probably glaze over. In fact, I can see on the screen that they have just glazed over. <laughs> Let, let's, <laughs> let's face it, insurance, um, income protection insurance is not the most interesting of subjects really isn't. And, you know, you often think um, a masterclass in how to make something very dull, interesting, like how would you market toilet paper or how would you uh, market drain cleaner or something like that. You know, income protection is one of those topics that most people would just think, how on earth can we make this this interesting? But it does have a place. It's a very useful financial benefit for people if they're earning a salary and, and if they become sick, can't work that insurance policy will pay their income whilst they're ill. And these three people, Joe Miller, Andrew Wibberley, and Katie Crook Davis, they are the uh, the executive team of a, of a, of a um, body called the Income Protection Task Force. And they recently ran what they called the IP Awareness Week. Um, now, again, you, you're talking about an awareness week for an insurance product. You can just see eyes glazing over still. But they put together an action-packed five days of video content, online written content. They had animations. They had Zoom webinars, Zoom interviews. They had snippets. They had call-outs. They had stuff going on in London and all of this was done on an absolute shoestring budget and it generated a massive massive amount of publicity for that particular part of the financial services industry and I I know these people really well and I and I've worked with them all over the years and I know how much work they put into this and the amount of feedback that this generated on Twitter and across the socials was just remarkable. So even though income protection isn't the most interesting of subjects, I really did think that they deserved a shout out for this fantastic week-long campaign. Uh, super. And so both our selections today, it's all about commitment to their industry and finding ways to just get that message across in, in ways that are interesting and engaging for their audiences. And that should be celebrated, which is what we're doing. Fantastic. Now, Pascal, it's your birthday <laughs> and you asked for this one. So let's get into film marketing and let's talk about Jaws. Okay, so let's go back to 1975. That was two years before Star Wars, don't forget. Jaws hit the cinemas and it effectively was, Pascal, the first of the summer blockbusters. Before 1975, the, the summer blockbuster thing just didn't 
exist. The summer blockbuster marketing campaigns just didn't exist. This film, Jaws, was the one that started it all off. So let's have a look at the trailer and then let's talk about the film. There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him jaws. From the best-selling novel, Jaws. Rated PG. Maybe too intense for younger children. Well, Pascal, <laughs> another trip down memory lane. You must have seen that trailer hundreds of times. In fact, you've probably seen the film hundreds of times. So tell me, what is it about Jaws that you love so much? Oh, do you know, and I'm very aware that this is not the making of Jaws. This is a marketing of Jaws. Mm. So mm. I shall keep this answer very, very brief. But for me, it's two things. As a uh, young teenager, I think I was about 12 or 13, our local film club was doing a Spielberg special. It was Double Bill, Rage of the Lost Ark, and Jaws. And for the princely sum of five francs, you could watch <laughs> both movies. And I went in the afternoon, and I was so blown away. I think for me it was transformational, Roger, and probably what made me want to become a filmmaker. I ran home, begged and pleaded my mother to give me more money, and promised I would do more washing up, I think, in the week <laughs> leading up to, and went back in, and went back in the evening to watch it again. And Joe's both terrifying me, but also even as a young young man, I understood then this is a story incredibly well told mm. and an example for, for others to follow, which has been the case, of course. Yeah, I mean, again, I was I, I was 10, I think, when it came out. And my uncle John took me to the cinema to see it because my father was away at the time I seem to think and my mother was too scared to go to the cinema so my uncle John had to take me to the cinema to see it and I remember him buying me a Jaws mug which I still have in the in the cupboard somewhere I must, you must have look. Wow. I'm pretty sure it's it's probably very faded and very um, uh, sort of delicate now but yeah and I mean again I, I, this isn't as you say this is not the making of Jaws and this is not a massive review of Jaws but there are just some of those things that you just the storytelling, as you said, fantastic. That scene where Quint's telling the story of him oh. in that on that ship that went down with the sharks circling around is just mesmerising, isn't it? You, you, you get sucked in so much more than any storytelling scene in any film of all time. That always stands out to me as just masterful. Um, the you know the tension of the music, the fact that they don't reveal the shark until so far into the film keeping it hidden just amplifies the, the the fear factor and and of course lots and lots of um, quite scary standout moments and, and there's one bit of I don't know whether this is just an urban legend now Pascal but I want to ask you about it you know the bit where the the head comes out of the hole in the side of the boat uh, and yes. and there's the, there's the uh, there's one eye missing, and it really happens, and it takes, and you know that everybody in the cinema just <gasps> you know was so shocked by this. Now I heard back in the seventies, if you were flying on a long haul aeroplane, they obviously didn't have seat back TVs in those days, so they used to have big screens at the front of the cabin of the plane, and people would watch the film all at the same time so they they couldn't watch films on demand now i'd heard that the pilots had to be aware that that part of the film when the head came out the side of the boat was coming up because literally 300 people on a 747 <laughs> would jump at the same moment and it would actually make the, the plane bounce and the pilots had to be aware of that was coming so they could compensate now i think that's probably an urban legend but i have heard it from quite a lot of people no, indeed, it, it happened where, 
you know, the, the parent had heard, you know, the the gasps and the screaming from people because <laughs> once again, I'd imagine that a younger audience watching Jaws today may just not get the same impact. Mm. And I've seen moments where people just laugh at the shark thing; it looks fake. I said, yeah. "Well, what did you expect?" Yeah. But I think when Stephen Spielberg was asked about the shark. Um, Bruce, as we know, and yeah. you know the thing that it was awfully mechanical and it was fake and this and the other. He said, "Well, I will tell you that by the time you see the shark, the audience is with me, yeah. and the audience is going to just play along and continue to essentially um, support those three heroes on on that boat, the orca." Yeah, three unlikely individuals, very different. Um, you know, the the conflict between Hooper and Quint is just exquisite um, to watch. So. Interestingly, when I'm asked about, you know, do I have any favorite moments in Joe's, they just they aren't just too many because you can watch it for the photography, you can watch it for the camera movement, which we mentioned, you can watch it for the storytelling, the acting, the writing. It's absolutely exquisite. And let's remind ourselves that this is a movie that was nominated for four Oscars and won three. Mm-hmm. You know, best music, best sound, best editing, which I think is for me to one for best editing back in the days they only lo- only lost to um the uh, one flew o- over cuckoo's nest for mm-hmm. the best film that year and but i will say um if i take you back to when i was that child watching joe for the first time the very first victim the whole scene filmed you know with uh, during the sunset is just uh, frightening as hell mm. and then yet yeah, the whole scene when after a day of uh, of chasing the shark they just sat there eating drinking singing that song you know show me the way to go home comparing scars and then we have the monologue from um, robert shaw and then as as an audience we are also relaxing bang the shark is back literally at- attacking the boat and so it continues for me what a film, what a contribution to the world of cinema, and what a way to launch your career when you are called Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Bearing in mind that this movie was nearly cancelled by the studios, took three times as long and three was three times more expensive. And when it was all said and done and they were busy just finishing the edit, Steven Spielberg will confess to being in the hotel room thinking, that's me done as a filmmaker, I might as well <laughs> be looking for a day job. Uh, absolutely. And I have to say, Pascal, it's credit to Steven Spielberg and his belief that the tension, the music, the characters sucks you in enough so that you can put up with the shark, that he's never, ever done a George Lucas and gone back and created a CGI version of the shark. Because Mm. they could do, couldn't they? They could try and come up with a shark that looks more like a shark, but it's the fact that they haven't done that that proves how successful the film was in actually not relying upon the shark. Oh, you're absolutely right. So looking at the marketing now, interestingly, as a uh, huge fan, I know you are and people around the world uh, are, but I've got pretty much every books, every documentary, <laughs> I've listened to every podcast going. So in the making of, you and I could speak about it for two, three hours, but in the marketing of, I've learned some new things, oh. which uh, is, is a real pleasure. So to begin with, what we've done, viewers and listeners, we split the marketing campaign of all marketing campaigns for 1975 into the elements of the key art or iconic poster, the book. We're going to talk about the touring and media coverage, the TV campaign, and final kind of post-launch uh, activities that also carry the movie forward. Um, before we begin, can we just once again mention the music? Yeah. I mean, that movie has an identity from a sound point of view, which is quite something, isn't it? I mean, again, that music is just iconic. Everybody, even people, I mean, I can't believe there's that many people who have not seen Jaws, but even people who haven't seen Jaws would recognise the music. And and it has been reused it's sometimes in comedies. I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure I remember it. The airplane movies where the, the, yeah. the fins are going across the sky, they use the Jaws music there. And it's often used in comedy to imply tension, isn't it? I mean, that movie's been obviously linked to people being terrified to go into water. So very, very mm. quickly, 10 years later, after having seen Jaws many times already, I'm busy surfing my friends in France. I'm sat on the surfboard, feet are dangling in the water waiting for the wave, and then you feel something on your foot. And I tell you, Roger, you try hard, and then suddenly in your head you hear, and then you kind of go right. uh, And literally, it's become this thing where it's worse than the boogeyman. Anyway, talking of the shark, (laughs) we mentioned what's called in industry the key art. And what is interesting 
the producers and financiers, uh, kind of represented by Richard Zanuck and David Brown, from the get-go told everybody, we will not deviate from the key art of the shark's head pointing towards the swimmer and you know using this wonderful kind of um, image that we've seen time and time again. And that key art has been used for the poster, for the book cover, for the cup that you have, for the yep. T-shirts and so on, and already 1975, just sticking to good brand guidelines. Yeah, and again, you're absolutely. I can remember learning how to draw <laughs> that shark. You know, I got pretty good at drawing that shark. But um, it's just again, we, you know, last week we talked about misery and that iconic poster. This is again so simple, really, isn't it? It's a shark's head, the surface of the water, and somebody swimming across the surface of the water, and that's pretty much it. But it's it just sums everything up, and and there's even tension in the in the poster, isn't there? Yeah, because you, the anticipation of this poor victim, uh, yeah. what is absolutely exquisite about the poster, it's um, hand-drawn and hand-painted, which I think gives it that um, gravitas. People still buy to this day to have in their, you know, on their walls. Yeah. Uh, but a fun fact for you and viewers and listeners, the kind of um, designer, so to speak, is called um, Roger Castell, who is also then commissioned to do the poster for the Empire Strikes Backs a few years later. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? Now, and if, uh, go, on. go on. Sorry. One thing I was going to say then is moving on to the second element of the marketing campaign, if that's what you had in mind. Yeah. I did not appreciate at all to what degree the book was essential, if not critical, to the success of this promotional campaign. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I do remember, maybe my memory's a little bit hazy, but the book definitely did feel as if it was all part of it. I'm pretty sure that I got the book quite quite soon, quite close to the film's launch, but I definitely got the book before the film. And, of course, you had the iconic cover of the book, mm. same as the film as well. Uh, and that just in the, that created so much anticipation um, because, again, the... the, the the film in the early part of the um, film follows the book pretty closely. Um, so I'd already read the book and knew what was coming. Uh, and the, the book's really quite quite descriptive and quite tense mm. as well. And, of course, the, 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 the film managed to amplify all of that. But, yeah, I remember everybody had the Jaws book. And I remember um, W.H. Smith's in um, St. Anne's Square, they had the big sort of rack of Jaws books in the window. And, you know, all those sharks in the window of W.H. <laughs> Smith's, again, very iconic. And therefore, what the, the team did was to apply what you know would call content marketing technique or word of mouth marketing techniques, where they sent a um, special hardcover version of Jaws, the mm. book, to what they called at the time opinion holders, which mm. I think would have the less elegant name or label of influencers nowadays. Now. Then they sent copies, you know, kind of paperback copies to Everybody that was, I would say, a hub from restaurant owners to visible um, kind of MDs and CEOs to even personal friends in the media. So anyone that could essentially sing the praises of the book and by extension the movie was sent a, a copy. So using, once again, networking to their advantage. And not to mention, of course, that as you, the examples of many, many book outlets just creating events, I think the one that if you were uh, local to Martha's Vineyard and you could go to the very place where the film would be made by your book and maybe get it signed by some of the locals that appeared as uh, as extras, that would be quite special, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I, I actually struggle to think of another film actually where the book has become such a key part of the marketing campaign. Yeah, no, absolutely. So once again, not something that I had understood. I have the book as, as a collector. Um, I think it's interesting to read because you can see the difference between the book and the um, and the film, but also where, where they kept things going. But um, yeah, you know, at a time where once again, people are singing the praises of content marketing as a newer practice, I would say, well, in 1975, people were doing it already. The one thing that, of course, they did superbly, you would expect that, is the touring and mm. media coverage. So, yeah, they went to the Cannes Film Festival, Pascal, but they didn't actually show the whole film, didn't they? They just gave them a, a longer trailer. Again, it's all about building the tension, creating the excitement, making it a must-see film. 
And what is interesting, I've heard that done before. Uh, Quentin Tarantino has done, done it before. Um, you know, Jean-Claude Van Damme did it as well, where they don't have a film, but they managed to get the journalists to talk about a film that they've not seen just by doing uh, VIP screenings, maybe a longer trailer, or inviting them for a coffee and, and the chat. So uh, that's really quite exciting. But whilst they were there in Europe, um, which must have been interesting to travel to Europe in 1975, thinking about it, mm. you may know which kind of aircraft they would have used then. <laughs> um, they did you know, Paris, London to negotiate um, distribution deals for the books and the movie. And and maybe one for historian of Joe's. Um, Zanuck and Brand was, were interviewed by the BBC and ITV, so there may be, may be some footage somewhere. That would be interesting to see, wouldn't it? The one thing that research um, would suggest is that both um, Zanuck and Brand, Spielberg and Peter Benchley, then for two weeks toured 11 US cities. Now, there's some grueling diary. I mean, they must not have slept much. But the success of all those guest appearances on TV and radio led to the famous uh, Time magazine cover, where Jaws, literally the iconic poster, was on the cover of Time magazine. Once again, an incredible collector item to be sought out. I'm sure it must cost a fortune by now. And of course, there was a massive TV campaign, wasn't there, yeah. in the run-up to this? And, and, and again, my memory might be hazy because it's so long ago, but to me, there, weren't, there wasn't a film that had had such a massive focus on TV before this one. I mean, you'd get the odd, you'd see the odd trailer, the odd um, uh, hint towards the film. But this one, I definitely remember it being on so much. Oh, look, there's that shark film again. That's why I had to get my Uncle John to take me to see it, because I'd seen it advertised so much that I just had to be there. Well, quite simply, Roger, TV was today's social media. Yeah. This was yeah. The, the way in which you can approach an audience. And for the first time ever, much of the surprise of the different broadcasting channels, they had people from Universal negotiating with them to have the 30-second or one-minute um, <laughs> advert or, or teaser trailer, if you yeah. use that term, appearing, where they thought, no, what normally people want to sell, forgive me, products or cars or, yes. or chocolate. Why would you want to promote a film? And that allowed them to keep the price to a minimum. But as you mentioned, this is not only the first summer blockbuster, this is also the first proper summer blockbuster campaign. Mm. So they spent nearly, nearly three quarters of a million you know, uh, dollars on TV advertising, unheard of. It's now become the norm, you could argue. But before that, two things were happening. The summer was always seen as a dead period for films mm. because people mm. were too busy, oddly, going to the beach Go and to streaming. The beach. <laughs> and therefore, a studio would just show their lesser properties during the summer because they knew it wouldn't work and waiting for the Christmas really market and, and more. And then secondly, typically, a, a movie was advertised with a press release in a local newspaper. That was it. Yeah. So the TV campaign and the book were true additions that transformed the way which studios thought about marketing a film. And after the film was released, Universal kept on, didn't they? Mm. You know, there was a load of marketing tie-ins, action figures, clothing. <laughs> you know, you, you, you were seeing ice cream being sold in shops in flavors like chocolate and vanilla, <laughs> um, Jaws yeah. themes, discos in the Hamptons. And, and of course, there was a massive increase in the number of shikes, shark sightings across the world as well, which actually had the effect of keeping people out of the water in the summer, which is, uh, again, incredible to, to know the effect that this film had on on popular culture yeah one final thing that we know from our research is again 75 so it was released in the summer of 75 in the u.s it was uh, the following year in the uk and france so somehow we didn't have the same summer buzz it was more of a winter thing but the advertising and the, the pr machine had done its job but the one thing that i thought was once again this idea of being good at business and sales, the studios delayed the release of Joe's on VHS cassettes or Bitamax potentially mm. because they thought, no, what we can do here, we can keep releasing this movie at the theaters. Uh -huh. So actually it took two, three years before anyone could get their hands on Joe's, the video cassette. And then once that was done, then all the re-release on different DVDs. And yes, as a collector, I have every single format you can <laughs> think of, of that movie, a bar laser disc. But I thought, yeah, that's interesting that uh, they were able to keep releasing the movie at the theaters and make more money. Um, 
And wow, what can we say? An amazing, amazing contribution to the world of cinema once again, um, Roger. Yeah, and, 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 and a pleasure to review the marketing. And, and in fact, you know, sometimes you and I th- say, we can't really do this film. It's 40 years old. We'll never be able to find out much about the marketing. But look how much you've managed to dig up on this. And these were articles and podcasts and books. So this movie was made, um, you could argue, 45 years ago onwards. Now, of course, last year in the US and this year in the UK and France is the 45th anniversary, but because there's something else going on in the world to <laughs> take its place. But I'm hopeful that for the big 5-0, they're going to do something um, very special. But this movie is shown in cinemas around the world regularly, sometimes indie movies and so on. And I recently read that Cannes did try, but of course the beaches were closed because of the pandemic. They did try to have a Joe screening on the beach. So imagine you're sat on the beach in Cannes with the scene maybe front or behind you. On the big screen, you've got Joe's, but you are sat in the same <laughs> with the waves crashing behind you. That would have been quite an experience. Fantastic. And, and such an image and such an image. And it's so good to talk about this on your birthday, Pascal. Thank you so and I, much. <laughs> I do know that it is one of your, if not your favourite film of all time. So finally, we have it as part of our film marketing slot. Everyone, thank you so much once again for watching or listening to Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch. Do please let us know what you thought of the show. Give us your comments. Give us your feedback. You can leave us comments below the YouTube video. You can talk to us on Twitter if you like. So until the next episode of Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, please go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Mm-hmm.